0: Chapter 10 of Cleopatra. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Robin Cotter, May 2008. Cleopatra by Jacob Abbott. Chapter 10 Cleopatra and Antony. How far Cleopatra was influenced in her determination to espouse the cause of Antony, rather than that of Brutus and Cassius in the civil war described in the last chapter, by gratitude to Caesar, and how far, on the other hand, by personal interest in Antony, the reader must judge. Cleopatra had seen Antony, it will be recollected some years before, during his visit to Egypt, when she was a young girl she was doubtless well acquainted with his character. It was a character peculiarly fitted, in some respects, to captivate the imagination of a woman so ardent and impulsive and bold as Cleopatra was fast becoming. Antony had, in fact, made himself an object of universal interest throughout the world by his wild and eccentric manners, and reckless conduct, and by the very extraordinary vicissitudes which had marked his career. In moral character he was as utterly abandoned and depraved as it was possible to be. In early life, as has already been stated, he plunged into such a course of dissipation and extravagance that he became utterly and hopelessly ruined, or, rather, he would have been so, had he not by the influence of that magic power of fascination which such characters often possess succeeded in gaining a great ascendancy over a young man of immense fortune named curio who for a time upheld him by becoming surety for his debts this resource however soon failed and antony was compelled to abandon rome and to live for some years as a fugitive and exile, in dissolute wretchedness and want. During all the subsequent vicissitudes through which he passed in the course of his career, the same habits of lavish expenditure continued whenever he had funds at his command. This trait of character took the form sometimes of a noble generosity. In his campaigns the plunder which he acquired he usually divided among his soldiers— reserving nothing for himself. This made his men enthusiastically devoted to him, and led them to consider his prodigality as a virtue, even when they did not themselves derive any direct advantage from it. A thousand stories were always in circulation in camp of acts, on his part illustrating his reckless disregard of the value of money, some ludicrous, and all eccentric and strange. In his personal habits, too, he was as different as possible from other men. He prided himself on being descended from Hercules, and he affected a style of dress, and a general air and manner in accordance with the savage character of this his pretended ancestor. His features were sharp, his nose was arched and prominent, and he wore his hair and beard very long, as long, in fact, as he could make them grow these peculiarities imparted to his countenance a very wild and ferocious expression he adopted a style of dress too which judged of with reference to the prevailing fashions of the time gave to his whole appearance a rough savage and reckless air his manner and demeanour corresponded with his dress and appearance he lived in habits of the most unreserved familiarity with his soldiers He associated freely with them, ate and drank with them in the open air, and joined in their noisy mirth and rude and boisterous hilarity. His commanding powers of mind and the desperate recklessness of his courage enabled him to do all this without danger. These qualities inspired in the minds of the soldiers a feeling of profound respect for their commander, and this good opinion he was enabled to retain, notwithstanding such habits of familiarity, with his inferiors, as would have been fatal to the influence of an ordinary man. In the most prosperous portion of Antony's career, for example, during the period immediately preceding the death of Caesar, he addicted himself to vicious indulgences of the most open, public, and shameless character. He had around him a sort of court, formed of jesters, tumblers, mountebanks, play-actors, and other similar characters of the lowest and most disreputable class. Many of these companions were singing and dancing girls, very beautiful and very highly accomplished in the arts of their respective professions, but all totally corrupt and depraved. Public sentiment, even in that age and nation, strongly condemned this conduct. The people were pagans, it is true. But it is a mistake to suppose that the formation of a moral sentiment in the community against such vices as these is a work which Christianity alone can perform. There is a law of nature, in the form of an instinct universal in the race, imperiously enjoining that the connection of the sexes shall consist of the union of one man with one woman, and that woman his wife, and very sternly prohibiting every other so that there has probably never been a community in the world so corrupt that a man could practice in it such vices as those of antony without not only violating his own sense of right and wrong but also bringing upon himself the general condemnation of those around him still the world is prone to be very tolerant in respect to the vices of the great such exalted personages as Antony seem to be judged by a different standard from common men. Even in the countries where those who occupy high stations of trust or of power are actually selected, for the purpose of being placed there, by the voices of their fellow-men, all inquiry into the personal character of a candidate is often suppressed, such inquiry being condemned as wholly irrelevant and improper, and they who succeed in attaining to power enjoy immunities in their elevation, which are denied to common men. But notwithstanding the influence of Antony's rank and power in shielding him from public censure, he carried his excesses to such an extreme that his conduct was very loudly and very generally condemned. He would spend all the night in carousals, and then the next day would appear in public staggering in the streets, Sometimes he would enter the tribunals for the transaction of business when he was so intoxicated that it would be necessary for friends to come to his assistance to conduct him away. In some of his journeys in the neighborhood of Rome he would take a troop of companions with him of the worst possible character, and travel with them openly and without shame. There was a certain actress, named Scytheride, whom he made his companion on one such occasion. She was borne upon a litter in his train, and he carried about with him a vast collection of gold and silver plate, and of splendid table furniture, together with an endless supply of luxurious articles of food and of wine, to provide for the entertainments and banquets which he was to celebrate with her on the journey. He would sometimes stop by the roadside, pitch his tents, establish his kitchens, set his cooks at work to prepare a feast. "'spread his tables, and make a sumptuous banquet "'of the most costly, complete, and ceremonious character, "'all to make a man wonder at the abundance and perfection "'of the means of luxury which he could carry with him "'wherever he might go. "'In fact, he always seemed to feel a special pleasure "'in doing strange and extraordinary things "'in order to excite surprise. "'Once on a journey he had lions harnessed to his carts "'to draw his baggage in order to create a sensation.' notwithstanding the heedlessness with which antony abandoned himself to these luxurious pleasures when at rome no man could endure exposure and hardship better when in camp or on the field in fact he rushed with as much headlong precipitation into difficulty and danger when abroad as into expense and dissipation when at home during his contests with octavius and lepidus after caesar's death HE ONCE HAD OCCASION TO PASS THE ALPS, WHICH, WITH HIS CUSTOMARY RECKLESSNESS, HE ATTEMPTED TO TRAVERSE WITHOUT ANY PROPER SUPPLIES OF STORES OR MEANS OF TRANSPORTATION. HE WAS REDUCED ON THE PASSAGE, TOGETHER WITH THE TROOPS UNDER HIS COMMAND, TO THE MOST EXTREME DESTITUTION AND DISTRESS. THEY HAD TO FEED ON ROOTS AND HERBS, AND FINALLY ON THE BARK OF TREES, AND THEY BARELY PRESERVED THEMSELVES BY THESE MEANS FROM ACTUAL STARVATION. Antony seemed, however, to care nothing for all this, but pressed on through the difficulty and danger, manifesting the same daring and determined unconcern to the end. In the same campaign he found himself at one time reduced to extreme destitution in respect to men. His troops had been gradually wasted away until his situation had become very desperate, he conceived under these circumstances the most extraordinary idea of going over alone to the camp of lepidus and enticing away his rival's troops from under the very eyes of their commander this bold design was successfully executed antony advanced alone clothed in wretched garments and with his matted hair and beard hanging about his breast and shoulders up to lepidus's lines the men who knew him well received him with acclamations, and pitying the sad condition to which they saw that he was reduced, began to listen to what he had to say. Lepidus, who could not attack him, since he and Antony were not at that time in open hostility to each other, but were only rival commanders in the same army, ordered the trumpeters to sound in order to make a noise which should prevent the words of Antony from being heard. This interrupted the negotiation, but the men immediately disguised two of their number in female apparel, and sent them to Antony to make arrangements with him for putting themselves under his command, and offering at the same time to murder Lepidus, if he would but speak the word. Antony charged them to do Lepidus no injury. He, however, went over and took possession of the camp, and assumed the command of the army. He treated Lepidus himself personally with extreme politeness, and retained him as a subordinate under his command. Not far from the time of Caesar's death Antony was married. The name of the lady was Fulvia. She was a widow at the time of her marriage with Antony, and was a woman of very marked and decided character. She had led a wild and irregular life previous to that time but she conceived a very strong attachment to her new husband, and devoted herself to him from the time of her marriage with the most constant fidelity. She soon acquired a very great ascendancy over him, and was the means of effecting a very considerable reform in his conduct and character. She was an ambitious and aspiring woman, and made many very efficient and successful efforts to promote the elevation and aggrandizement of her husband. She appeared also to take great pride and pleasure in exercising over him, herself, a great personal control. She succeeded in these attempts in a manner that surprised everybody. It seemed astonishing to all mankind that such a tiger as he had been could be subdued by any human power. Nor was it by gentleness and mildness that Fulvia gained such power over her husband. She was of a very stern and masculine character, and she seems to have mastered Antony by surpassing him in the use of his own weapons. In fact, instead of attempting to soothe and mollify him, she reduced him, it seems, to the necessity of resorting to various contrivances, to soften and propitiate her. Once, for example, on his return from a campaign, in which he had been exposed to great dangers, he disguised himself and came home at night in the garb of courier-bearing dispatches he caused himself to be ushered, muffled and disguised as he was, into Fulvia's apartments, where he handed her some pretended letters, which he said were from her husband. And while Fulvia was opening them in great excitement and trepidation, he threw off his disguise, and revealed himself to her by clasping her in his arms and kissing her in the midst of her amazement. Antony's marriage with Fulvia, besides being the means of reforming his morals in some degree, softened and civilized him in respect to his manners. His dress and appearance now assumed a different character. In fact, his political elevation after Caesar's death soon became very exalted, and the various democratic arts by which he had sought to raise himself to it, being now no longer necessary, were, as usual in such cases, gradually discarded he lived in great style and splendor when at rome and when absent from home on his military campaigns he began to exhibit the same pomp and parade in his equipage and in his arrangements as were usual in the camps of other roman generals after the battle of philippi described in the last chapter antony who with all his faults was sometimes a very generous foe as soon as the tidings of Brutus's death were brought to him, repaired immediately to the spot, and appeared to be quite shocked and concerned at the sight of the body. He took off his own military cloak or mantle, which was a very magnificent and costly garment, being enriched with many expensive ornaments, and spread it over the corpse. He then gave directions to one of the officers of his household to make arrangements for funeral ceremonies of a very imposing character, as a testimony of his respect for the memory of the deceased. In these ceremonies it was the duty of the officer to have burned the military cloak which Antony had appropriated to the purpose of a pall with the body. He did not, however, do so. The cloak, being very valuable, he reserved it, and he withheld also a considerable part of the money which had been given him for the expenses of the funeral." he supposed that antony would probably not inquire very closely into the details of the arrangements made for the funeral of his most inveterate enemy antony however did inquire into them and when he learned what the officer had done he ordered him to be killed the various political changes which occurred and the movements which took place among the several armies after the battle of philippi can not be here detailed It is sufficient to say that Antony proceeded to the eastward through Asia Minor, and in the course of the following year came to Cilicia. From this place he sent a messenger to Egypt, to Cleopatra, summoning her to appear before him. There were charges, he said, against her of having aided Cassius and Brutus in the late war, instead of rendering assistance to him, whether there really were any such charges or whether they were only fabricated by Antony as pretexts for seeing Cleopatra, the fame of whose beauty was very widely extended, does not certainly appear. However this may be, he sent to summon the queen to come to him. The name of the messenger whom Antony dispatched on this errand was Delius. Fulvia, Antony's wife, was not with him at this time. She had been left behind at Rome. Delius proceeded to Egypt and appeared at Cleopatra's court. The queen was at this time about twenty-eight, but more beautiful, as was said, than ever before. Delius was very much struck with her beauty, and with a certain fascination in her voice and conversation, of which her ancient biographers often speak as one of the most irresistible of her charms. He told her that she need have no fear of Antony. It was of no consequence, he said, what charges there might be against her. She would find that in a very few days, after she had entered into Antony's presence, she would be in great favor. She might rely, in fact, he said, on gaining very speedily an unbounded ascendancy over the general. He advised her, therefore, to proceed to Cilicia without fear, and to present herself before Antony in as much pomp and magnificence as she could command. He would answer, he said, for the result cleopatra determined to follow this advice in fact her ardent and impulsive imagination was fired with the idea of making a second time the conquest of the greatest general and highest potentate in the world she began immediately to make provision for the voyage she employed all the resources of her kingdom in procuring for herself the most magnificent means of display such as expensive and splendid dresses rich services of plate ornaments of precious stones and of gold, and presents in great variety, and of the most costly description for Antony. She appointed also a numerous retinue of attendants to accompany her, and, in a word, made all the arrangements complete for an expedition of the most imposing and magnificent character. While these preparations were going forward, she received new and frequent communications from Antony, urging her to hasten her departure, but she paid very little attention to them. It was evident that she felt quite independent, and was intending to take her own time. At length, however, all was ready, and Cleopatra set sail. She crossed the Mediterranean Sea, and entered the mouth of the river Cydnus. Antony was at Tarsus, a city upon the Cydnus, a small distance above its mouth. When Cleopatra's fleet had entered the river, she embarked on board a most magnificent barge which she had constructed for the occasion, and had brought with her across the sea. This barge was the most magnificent and highly ornamented vessel that had ever been built. It was adorned with carvings and decorations of the finest workmanship, and elaborately gilded. The sails were of purple, and the oars were inlaid and tipped with silver. Upon the deck of this barge Queen Cleopatra appeared, under a canopy of cloth of gold. She was dressed very magnificently, in the costume in which Venus, the goddess of beauty, was then generally represented. She was surrounded by a company of beautiful boys, who attended upon her in the form of Cupids, and fanned her with their wings, and by a group of young girls representing the nymphs and the graces. There was a band of musicians stationed upon the deck. This music guided the oarsmen, as they kept time to it in their rowing, and, soft as the melody was, the strains were heard far and wide over the water and along the shores. As the beautiful vessel advanced on its way, the performers were provided with flutes, lyres, viols, and all the other instruments customarily used in those times to produce music of a gentle and voluptuous kind. Illustration meeting of Cleopatra and Antony. In fact, the whole spectacle seemed like a vision of enchantment. Tidings of the approach of the barge spread rapidly around, and the people of the country came down in crowds to the shores of the river, to gaze upon it in admiration as it glided slowly along. At the time of its arrival at Tarsus, Antony was engaged in giving a public audience at some tribunal in his palace but everybody ran to see Cleopatra and the barge, and the great Triumvir was left consequently alone, or at least with only a few official attendants near him. Cleopatra, on arriving at the city, landed and began to pitch her tents on the shores. Antony sent a messenger to bid her welcome, and to invite her to come and sup with him. She declined the invitation, saying that it was more proper that he should come and sup with her, She would accordingly expect him to come, she said, and her tents would be ready at the proper hour. Antony complied with her proposal, and came to her entertainment. He was received with a magnificence and splendor which amazed him. The tents and pavilions where the entertainment was made were illuminated with an immense number of lamps. These lamps were arranged in a very ingenious and beautiful manner, so as to produce an illumination of the most surprising brilliancy and beauty." The immense number and variety, too, of the meats and wines, and of the vessels of gold and silver, with which the tables were loaded, and the magnificence and splendor of the dresses worn by Cleopatra and her attendants, combined to render the whole scene one of bewildering enchantment. The next day Antony invited Cleopatra to come and return his visit. But, though he made every possible effort to provide a banquet as sumptuous and as sumptuously served as hers, He failed entirely in this attempt, and acknowledged himself completely outdone. Antony was, moreover, at these interviews, perfectly fascinated with Cleopatra's charms. Her beauty, her wit, her thousand accomplishments, and, above all, the tact and adroitness and self-possession which she displayed in assuming at once so boldly, and carrying out so adroitly, the idea of her social superiority over him— that he yielded his heart almost immediately to her undisputed sway. The first use which Cleopatra made of her power was to ask Antony for her sake to order her sister Arsinoe to be slain. Arsinoe had gone, it will be recollected, to Rome, to grace Caesar's triumph there, and had afterwards retired to Asia, where she was now living in exile cleopatra either from a sentiment of past revenge or else from some apprehensions of future danger now desired that her sister should die antony readily acceded to her request he sent an officer in search of the unhappy princess the officer slew her where he found her within the precincts of a temple to which she had fled supposing it a sanctuary which no degree of hostility however extreme would have dared to violate Cleopatra remained at Tarsus for some time, revolving in an incessant round of gaiety and pleasure, and living in habits of unrestrained intimacy with Antony. She was accustomed to spend whole days and nights with him, in feasting and revelry. The immense magnificence of these entertainments, especially on Cleopatra's part, were the wonder of the world. She seems to have taken special pleasure in exciting Antony's surprise by the display of her wealth "'and the boundless extravagance in which she indulged. "'At one of her banquets Antony was expressing his astonishment "'at the vast number of gold cups, "'enriched with jewels that were displayed on all sides. "'Oh,' said she, "'they are nothing. "'If you like them, you shall have them all.' "'So saying, she ordered her servants to carry them to Antony's house. "'The next day she invited Antony again, "'with a large number of the chief officers of his army and court.' the table was spread with a new service of gold and silver vessels more extensive and splendid than that of the preceding day and at the close of the supper when the company was about to depart cleopatra distributed all these treasures among the guests that had been present at the entertainment at another of these feasts she carried her ostentation and display to the astonishing extreme of taking off from one of her earrings a pearl of immense value and dissolving it in a cup of vinegar, which she afterward made into a drink, such as was customarily used in those days, and then drank it. She was proceeding to do the same with the other pearl, when some of the company arrested the proceeding, and took the remaining pearl away. In the meantime, while Antony was thus wasting his time in luxury and pleasure with Cleopatra, his public duties were neglected, and everything was getting into confusion fulvia remained in italy her position and her character gave her a commanding political influence and she exerted herself in a very energetic manner to sustain in that quarter of the world the interests of her husband's cause she was surrounded with difficulties and dangers the details of which cannot however be here particularly described She wrote continually to Antony, urgently entreating him to come to Rome, and displaying in her letters all those marks of agitation and distress which a wife would naturally feel under the circumstances in which she was placed. The thought that her husband had been so completely drawn away from her by the guilty arts of such a woman, and led by her to abandon his wife and his family— and leave in neglect and confusion concerns of such momentous magnitude as those which demanded his attention at home, produced an excitement in her mind, bordering upon frenzy. Antony was at length so far influenced by his urgency of the case that he determined to return. He broke up his quarters at Tarsus, and moved south toward Tyre, which was a great naval port and station in those days. Cleopatra went with him. They were to separate at Tyre. She was to embark there for Egypt, and he for Rome. At least that was Antony's plan, but it was not Cleopatra's. She had been determined that Antony should go with her to Alexandria. As might have been expected, when the time came for the decision, the woman gained the day. Her flatteries, her arts, her caresses, her tears prevailed. After a brief struggle between the sentiment of love on the one hand, and those of ambition and of duty combined on the other, Antony gave up the contest. Abandoning everything else, he surrendered himself wholly to Cleopatra's control, and went with her to Alexandria. He spent the winter there, giving himself up with her to every species of sensual indulgence that the most remorseless license could tolerate, and the most unbounded wealth procure." There seemed, in fact, to be no bounds to the extravagance and infatuation which Antony displayed during the winter in Alexandria. Cleopatra devoted herself to him incessantly, day and night, filling up every moment of time with some new form of pleasure, in order that he might have no time to think of his absent wife, or to listen to the reproaches of his conscience. Antony, on his part, surrendered himself a willing victim to these wiles, and entered with all his heart into the thousand plans of gaiety and merry-making which Cleopatra devised. They had each a separate establishment in the city, which was maintained at an enormous cost, and they made an arrangement by which each was the guest of the other on alternate days. These visits were spent in games, sports, spectacles, feasting, drinking, and in every species of riot, irregularity, and excess. A curious instance is afforded of the accidental manner in which intelligence in respect to the scenes and incidents of private life in those ancient days is sometimes obtained, in a circumstance which occurred at this time in Antony's court. It seems that there was a young medical student at Alexandria that winter named Philotas, who happened in some way or other to have formed an acquaintance with one of Antony's domestics, a cook. Under the guidance of this cook, Philotas went one day into the palace to see what was to be seen. The cook took his friend into the kitchens, where, to Philotas's great surprise, he saw, among an infinite number and variety of other preparations, Eight wild boars roasting before the fires, some being more and some less, advanced in the process. Philotas asked what great company was to dine there that day. The cook smiled at this question, and replied that there was to be no company at all, other than Antony's ordinary party. "'But,' said the cook in explanation, "'we are obliged always to prepare several suppers, "'and to have them ready in succession at different hours,' for no one can tell at what time they will order the entertainment to be served. Sometimes, when the supper has been actually carried in, Antony and Cleopatra will get engaged in some new turn of their diversions, and conclude not to sit down just then to the table, and so we have to take the supper away, and presently bring in another. Antony had a son with him at Alexandria at this time, the child of his wife Fulvia. The name of the son, as well as that of the father, was Antony. He was old enough to feel some sense of shame at his father's dereliction from duty, and to manifest some respectful regard for the rights and the honor of his mother. Instead of this, however, he imitated his father's example, and, in his own way, was as reckless and extravagant as he. The same Philotas, who is above referred to was, after a time, appointed to some office or other in the young Antony's household, so that he was accustomed to sit at his table and share in his convivial enjoyments. He relates that once, while they were feasting together, there was a guest present, a physician, who was a very vain and conceited man, and so talkative that no one else had any opportunity to speak. All the pleasure of conversation was spoiled by his excessive garrulity. Philotas, however, at length puzzled him so completely with the question of logic, of a kind similar to those often discussed with great interest in ancient days, as to silence him for a time. And young Antony was so much delighted with this feat, that he gave Philotas all the gold and silver plate that there was upon the table, and sent the articles home to him, after the entertainment was over, telling him to put his mark and stamp upon them, and lock them up. The question with which Philotas puzzled the self-conceited physician was this. It must be premised, however, that in those days it was considered that cold water in an intermittent fever was extremely dangerous, except in some peculiar cases, and in those the effect was good. Philotas then argued as follows, In cases of a certain kind it is best to give water to a patient in an ague. All cases of ague are cases of a certain kind therefore it is best in all cases to give the patient water Philotas, having propounded his argument in this way challenged the physician to point out the fallacy of it and while the physician sat perplexed and puzzled in his attempts to unravel the intricacy of it the company enjoyed a temporary respite from his excessive loquacity Philotas adds in his account of this affair that he sent the gold and silver plate back to young antony again Being afraid to keep them, Antony said that perhaps it was as well that this should be done, since many of the vessels were of great value on account of their rare and antique workmanship, and his father might possibly miss them and wish to know what had become of them. As there were no limits, on the one hand, to the loftiness and grandeur of the pleasures to which Antony and Cleopatra addicted themselves, so there were none to the low and debasing tendencies which characterized them on the other sometimes at midnight after having been spending many hours in mirth and revelry in the palace antony would disguise himself in the dress of a slave and sally forth into the streets excited with wine in search of adventures in many cases cleopatra herself similarly disguised would go out with him on these excursions antony would take pleasure in involving himself in all sorts of difficulties and dangers in street riots drunken brawls and desperate quarrels with the populace all for cleopatra's amusement and his own stories of these adventures would circulate afterward among the people some of whom would admire the free and jovial character of their eccentric visitor and others would despise him as a prince degrading himself to the level of a brute some of the amusements and pleasures which antony and cleopatra pursued were innocent in themselves though wholly unworthy to be made the serious business of life by personages on whom such exalted duties rightfully devolved they made various excursions upon the nile and arranged parties of pleasure to go out on the water in the harbour and to various rural retreats in the environs of the city once they went out on a fishing party in boats in the port Antony was unsuccessful, and feeling chagrined that Cleopatra should witness his ill luck, he made a secret arrangement with some of the fishermen to dive down, where they could do so unobserved, and fasten fishes to his hook under the water. By this plan he caught very large and fine fish very fast. Cleopatra, however, was too wary to be easily deceived by such a stratagem as this. She observed the manoeuvre, but pretended not to observe it, She expressed, on the other hand, the greatest surprise and delight at Antony's good luck, and the extraordinary skill which it indicated. The next day she wished to go a-fishing again, and a party was accordingly made as on the day before. She had, however, secretly instructed another fisherman to procure a dried and salted fish from the market, and, watching his opportunity, to get down into the water under the boats and attach it to the hook before Antony's divers could get there. This plan succeeded, and Antony, in the midst of a large and gay party that were looking on, pulled out an excellent fish, cured and dried, such as was known to everyone as an imported article, bought in the market. It was a fish of a kind that was brought originally from Asia Minor. The boats and the water all around them resounded with the shouts of merriment and laughter which this incident occasioned. In the meantime, while Antony was thus spending his time in low and ignoble pursuits, and in guilty pleasures at Alexandria, his wife Fulvia, after exhausting all other means of inducing her husband to return to her, became desperate, and took measures for fomenting an open war which she thought would compel him to return. The extraordinary energy, influence, and talent which Fulvia possessed enabled her to do this in an effectual manner. She organized an army, formed a camp, placed herself at the head of the troops, and sent such tidings to Antony of the dangers which threatened his cause, as greatly alarmed him. At the same time news came of great disasters in Asia Minor, and of alarming insurrections among the provinces which had been committed to his charge there. Antony saw that he must arouse himself from the spell which had enchanted him, and break away from Cleopatra, or that he would be wholly and irretrievably ruined. He made, accordingly, a desperate effort to get free. He bade the queen farewell, embarked hastily in a fleet of galleys, and sailed away to Tyre, leaving Cleopatra in her palace, vexed, disappointed, and chagrined. End of Chapter 10 Cleopatra and Antony